Hey everybody, the Con Artists here. We're here to talk about the shows that we watched for fall of 2023. There's only three of us. We lost Brendan again. No. Still not watching anything over there. Um, so there's me, Sue, Scott. Hello. And Dan. Hey. Here to talk about our stuff. All right, so who wants to kick us off? Uh, I can do that since I think in uh, this is one of the rare instances where I watched more uh, shows than y'all. Um, though well I will admit a few of those are carryovers, you know, finales of things that mainly uh, took place during the summer and such. So uh, it's a little bit of an odd season in terms of how everything was paced out. But let let me start off with uh, the finale of Jujutsu Kaisen season two, which uh, was. I have very mixed feelings because on the one hand, it wraps up the uh, Shinjuku incident arc, which is one of like, it's kind of like the winnowing for this, uh, for this story where like the status quo has changed very dramatically by the end. A lot of important people are either dead or grievously injured and the stakes have been raised significantly. And the show does a really good job of capturing that for the most part. Um, it's, you know, it's very climactic. It really wraps up the uh, admittedly kind of hard-to-follow story of what's going on. Not hard to follow because it's poorly written or anything, but just that there's so much going on in such a small area all at once that we're sort of constantly bouncing back and forth between perspectives, and it can be a little bit hard to track when certain things are happening in what order. But if you're paying attention, it's not too bad. Um there is some stuff that I find a little bit iffy about the fates of certain characters. Um, some people who are supposed to have very dramatic moments, um, it fell, it, the, what happened to them either fell a little flat for me, or it was very frustrating because there are some characters who sort of have been kind of in the background and are finally getting a chance to shine, but then are sort of unceremoniously removed from the story. But then it becomes clear, like, oh, no, they're teasing that they're going to be back, and I'm just not sure how I feel about it. It's like, if you're going to get rid of a character and use their uh, death or whatever happens to them for a really big dramatic gut punch, you either got to commit to it or don't make people think that you've taken them off the board when you're just planning on bringing them back later. It. It's a difficult thing to handle, and I don't want to, you know, say that there's an easy way to do it because you're always going to upset somebody. But for this one, it particularly ticked me off because there's some characters I was really interested in seeing more of and getting more about them. And then it's like the idea that they've either been taken off or that it was a fake out just kind of rubbed me the wrong way at the time. Oh, how many characters would you say are like roughly are getting this kind of bungee cord treatment? Uh, there are two that I know of, possibly a third, depending on, you know, how attached you are to that particular character. Um, but only two who are ones that we've sort of known for a while. And we really kind of, at least for me, I really want to see what happens with them. But they're, you know, as is the case, this is a shonen show. And while it has definitely bucked some of the trends, both of these characters are women. So it's like... Are we really doing this same uh, song and dance again, <laughs> where the ladies get to take uh, to take backstage to a bunch of dudes, despite arguably being, you know, some of the more interesting characters with some of the more interesting ties to the wider, like, meta story of the world? Eh, I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. It's going to really come down to what happens if and when they do come back, because having not followed the comic or any of the 
uh, works outside of the show and the movie, I can't really say. And I feel like if you're in the know, maybe my complaints or my issues are, you know, sort of short-sighted or irrelevant, but it is going to depend on how they, you know, stick the landing after the fact if those characters do actually get a chance to have more, um, more of an impact later on. We'll see. Um, really the only other thing I can say about it is that while the show is still, you know, the animation work in that series in general is incredible. Um, it still makes me really uncomfortable because there's a lot of really bad circumstances in which it was made. There were, you know, a lot of, uh, talk of overwork and burnout amongst the team, folks rushing to have to finish these incredibly elaborate, uh, battle scenes and shots and everything else under very, very tight conditions. And while it's obviously a labor of love, like the folks working on this have been pouring a ton into it, it really sucks to see that these kind of abusive and negative practices um, still persist in an industry that's already like struggling with so many other problems. So that kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth, despite otherwise overall really enjoying the series. Yeah, that's pretty gross. Yeah. I feel like we all like collectively know that this is the circumstance like, then, of the industry the we love. Sweatshop. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, it's kinda like you you know, you know your cell phone was made by, you know, horrible like child labor or something like that. But it, it's it's still really tough when you have to like get that put in your face and, mm-hmm. and be like, yeah, okay, I acknowledge this and I have to, you know, I don't feel very good about enjoying something that's built on the backs of other people's pain like that. Mm-hmm. And especially if it's like a situation where the story actually sort of breaks through and is bad enough of a situation where you, where we are like made aware of it because in a lot of cases, you know, if people, you know, if people crunch or work hard on a uh, on a series or suffer through burnout, nine times out of ten, you don't hear anything about it. And if it's bad enough for like international news to take notice, then it's got to be real bad. And that's the part that I think really, um, re- really is the is the stu- is what sticks is sticks with me even more. And you know, at the end of the day, it's like it isn't how it affects us that matters. It's the fact that folks had to go through all of that and, you know, but we can only hope for better conditions and to, you know, make our voices heard when we can on that regard. So not to be a super downer to start the, <laughs> to start our, uh, our block here, but um, yeah, try to try to support ethical business practices and push back where you can. Yeah. I'm not really sure what the avenues for doing that are in anime. Like, mm. do I change my Crunchyroll subscription or, you know, it's not like they're making DVDs for, any, for me to not buy very much. Yeah, it's but, it's a uh, difficult thing because, you know, especially if you're doing subscribing to a service, yeah, it's like I'm like watching these shows because I know that they were, you know, made by teams that were treated well. It's like, well, yes, but you're also putting that money towards a company that's partnering with studios that weren't doing those things. So, yeah, there's no easy way to do it unless you want to cut yourself off completely and at the end of the day, it's really you have to make a personal call as to what you will and will not watch and how you do and do not support it. So, just uh, try to be informed, do your research, and uh, yeah, try not to be a jerk about it online. Well, there you go. At least the discourse can be nicer. There you go. Sounds good. Uh, so I think if you were on the Jujutsu Kaisen boat, you're still watching it. I don't know that you like don't recommend it. No. 
For sure. I, I think that it's still a very well-made series with an excellent uh, overall story and that dives into some really, I won't say unexplored, but some really like interesting repercussions of these whole like secret world occult kind of situations um, and has some really incredible character work uh, throughout. So I'm still really enjoying it. I think that it's uh, going to be, it's going to be very interesting where we start in the next season now that everything has pretty much changed from where it was. Um, so yeah, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep watching it for now and uh, see where it goes. I don't know when the next season is going to come since, you know, this is a, uh, this was such a big arc, but uh, hopefully sooner rather than later, we'll see where it goes. Sounds like a plan. All right, I'll take over next with uh, The Boy and the Heron, or the Japanese title, How Do You Live? Do yourself a favor and call it How Do You Live? The Boy and the Heron is... I mean, sure, there is a boy and there is a heron, but How Do You Live has actual relevance to the movie. So uh, I would I would recommend doing yourself a favor. Tell yourself that's the title. So this was an interesting take, right? It's a, a Miyazaki's latest film, and it actually got runtime in major American theaters. Like, it's run for several weeks. I believe it's out now, but uh, it got real runtime. And I think we have Shinkai to thank for that. Like, uh, Suzume was so popular that they demanded that it come back to theaters for a certain period of time, and I think that paved the way for... Uh, how do you live to end up in in theaters uh, for its runtime? But um, premise wise, there's a boy named Mahito. He loses his mother in a fire during a war. I'm unclear if it was like an allegory to World War II or or something else. But um, she ends up dying in a fire. Afterwards, his father remarries her sister, and uh, Mahito is brought to to their mansion, his stepmother's mansion. She ends up being spirited away in a mysterious tower that's located on premise, and Mahito goes to rescue her with the help of this gray heron, among other allies he meets in this, like, spirited world. So let's get through the easy stuff. The movie looks gorgeous, and there's beautiful music. I think this is, like, a standard for Miyazaki, and, you know, this is no different. Plot-wise, there's a lot happening in this film, um, you know, you've got things like Mahito coming to terms with having a stepmother and like a soon to be step sibling. Um, it's there's kind of a plot point of the stepmother like trying to fit into her new role and like be accepted. So he sort of, I think, was trying to write a bit of a story from her perspective. There's ideas around the mysterious entity that controls the tower. There's ideas around life and death and balance in the world between all these concepts. I liked this film, but I think as with many Miyazaki films, uh, its, its themes get confused. Mahito himself is such a passive player. He's just ferried around in the spirited world. Uh, so many other people he interacts with are so much more interesting uh, A.K.A. the the women he interacts with, because I think Miyazaki just excels at writing these like bubbly, interesting women. 
And I was like, why aren't we following them instead? Uh, classic <laughs> anime problem. Why aren't we following the most interesting character? Why are we following this other guy? Yeah, it was just, he's such a dull character. It was really hard to, like, understand why he was the central focus, you know, of the movie. And I, th I thought to myself midway through watching the film, I was like, man, we have come a long way, like fallen a long way since Spirited Away. Like with Chihiro being like having such agency as she moved around and, and brought herself to that finale where she's able to identify her parents amongst the pigs and like earns that. Mahito is just is just moving around as the plot is needed. It's it almost felt like he wanted to tell a more interesting story around Mahito and like started with him in the plot and couldn't kind of get rid of him as an element. But yeah, he's not the best character to follow. Um, other problems narratively or things just happen. Like characters suddenly just like bond. It's like one spoiler I'll give you is like Mahito just like runs in and he's trying to save the stepmom. And just like all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he just like accepts his stepmom. He's just like, he starts calling her mom and you're like, this doesn't feel earned in the slightest. <laughs> like, hmm. not only have you been a completely passive player in this journey, and I don't understand any indication of you, like, changing or growing in the things that you've experienced. Like, we've gotten no perspective from her, even though I think we were trying to. And it just, like, boom, comes out of nowhere. Like, we need these two characters to, like, be okay with each other. Go. Right, like we've got a two-hour runtime and we're near the end, so this needs to happen now. Right, just just make it happen. The plot of the movie, though, is surprisingly complicated. I think it's really just that there's there's just too much he wanted to throw in here. There's just too much going on. Uh, I, I reckon needs to make a miniseries. Yeah, I know, right? I think that would have would have done him, a, you know, much more favors. Uh, I recommend seeing the movie twice. I think that's the general consensus of the community as well. Like there are complicated enough elements that, you know, it's interesting to think about on a rewatch. Um, one other element I want to throw in is, I don't know if it's just me getting old, but I'm just not as enamored with like the quirky Miyazaki sidekick characters. Like... I already, like, I really love Spirited Away, don't get me wrong, but I'm not as enamored with the whole, like, Yubaba and her twin as I think everyone else is. I, I think they're a little weird. Uh, and in this one, I'm just going to spoil it for you, the heron turns out to be a man in a heron suit, like a big-nosed man in a heron suit. And he's the sidekick that, you know, runs around with, with Mahito and... I was just kind of like, I, I don't like this character. Like, there's there's little uh, quirks about the heron suit. Like, special feathers make him fly. And, like, if he damages the suit, he can't fully transform back into a heron. And it was, like, quirky for the sake of quirky. And I just, it didn't fully make sense. It didn't add anything to the plot. It just felt like this little rule he threw in there. And I was like, why did the heron have to be a creepy man in a heron suit? Like, <laughs> I didn't understand this. It wasn't charming, you know, like a calcifer. It was just weird. And I, I didn't like it. It was just bizarre. And I didn't really understand the point of it. Anyway, overall. I feel like, yeah, I feel like there is like a Japanese myth about a person who is a heron and like, 
they like do, I don't know, spinning or cloth making or something unless you find out their identity and then they fly away forever or something. So, oh, like huh. maybe we're trying to draw on that myth, but this seems like, you know, in, in the story, it's your classic, I don't know, like Princess Kaguya type thing. At least I feel like it is. Okay. So I don't know why it's a man in a suit. And also it doesn't sound like it has many, any of the same properties, but the idea of a person turning into a heron at least has some, you know, mythological reach back. I suppose okay. that's true. All right. Well, that's really good to know. The other thing I had heard, uh, and having not seen it, Sue, I don't know what what do you think about this, is that uh, some people argue that the movie is deliberately operating on sort of like this childlike dream logic where like him being the main character being swept through all of these things is basically like participating in a dream where the amount of control you have over the circumstances and how things resolve like faster or more strangely than you expected is sort of just part of the um just part of the process of moving through the dream and i was wondering if you had any thoughts on that if you think that is a valid way of looking at it or if you think that the movie didn't really set up that sort of viewpoint i think it's completely valid until you hit the end and you meet the entity that's controlling the tower i don't want to get into that too much but Mm -hmm. the entity issues a degree of control a large degree of control over the world that's there and that is very important to mahito's character arc And so I think it's okay for it to be dream logic as long as Mahito was taking something away from it. But the fact that it's such weird, quirky dream logic that then is supposed to have impact doesn't gel well together, in my opinion. Okay. And maybe again, on a second watch, like maybe there's more to it than I think, but I think it's, there's too many moving pieces and... I don't really feel like Mahito gains what he needs to, to to earn the big question he's asked at the end. Um, I think right. maybe us, like we the viewer in some ways, are, are asked a deeper question than, than he is. Um, I'm going to steal something from my husband who thought about the movie a lot more than I did and said that uh, if you watch it and you think about it as... Somewhere in the middle of the film or towards the end of the film, Miyazaki switched the theme to instead of being about this boy going on this dreamlike journey, it being about his own journey through being an animator and like reflecting on his life as an animated filmmaker, it might have a little more impact uh, and and sort of the fear of the loss of control you know, and the fear of the end of your career, the end of your life is it actually makes the movie deeper if you approach it that way. I didn't know if I wanted to add that, but I I think it's interesting to watch the movie from both directions. And I want to give my husband full credit for thinking about it that much. Uh, So that was his idea. And I, I do think if you if I maybe watched it again with that kind of idea, it would have you know, some more impact. And then once again, how do you live? The the title means a lot to that idea as well. Overall, I recommend the film. I mean, it's still really beautiful to watch. It's got really interesting themes that you might want to think about. I mean, I think already with just you two, I've had an interesting discussion about it. I mean, totally worth the watch. 
uh, and totally worth seeing in theaters. Uh, definitely go to the subtitled version. I mean, I've heard the dubbed version is pretty good, but I think there's some nuance to the language that is better handled, obviously, by the subtitled version. So give it a, give it a go. Um, just, you know, expect some of the, the quirky pieces that I think are common in Miyazaki films nowadays. Gotcha. All right. A, a, a complicated recommendation. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it seems like those are going around uh, in these first couple. Um, well, here's a less complicated recommendation. Uh, you should watch Spy X Family Season 2. It's a lot of fun. If you enjoyed the first season, you'll definitely like this one. Uh, it is the boat season in which most of the uh, events take place on like this cruise liner that the whole family ends up on, but for basically it di in different places at different times as their um as each of their like spy slash assassin slash uh psychic child stories sort of take them in different directions while all dealing with the same problems on board this cruise ship infested by like spies and killers and other uh people that they're all trying to protect or deal with it's uh it's a there's a lot going on but it is a lot of fun Dan yeah, is watching. A good way to change it up. Is watching the show enhanced by playing Lonely Islands? I'm on a boat in the background <laughs> while you indulge in season two. I feel like this is a little more family friendly than that, so maybe the tonal dissonance would be a little much. I'm not, but you know, anytime you spend any length of any length of time on a uh, on a ship, that song is going to come up at some point or another. So. I don't know if it enhances it, but it doesn't necessarily hurt it. Uh, but yeah, it's, you know, like I said, if you enjoyed the first season, you'll probably like this one. Uh, I, in some ways, I liked the second half of it better, where they moved back into more of the, like, slice-of-life, day-to-day kind of stuff, and uh, had we had a chance to get a little bit of a closer look at some of the side characters and other stuff that... Uh, sort of fleshes out the world and makes everything, you know, they're the, the supporting cast that makes everything feel a little bit more real. Um, but the time on the boat is still very well spent because we're primarily spending it with uh, Yor, and I felt that she sort of got the short end of the stick in the first season. Uh, not that her, you know, story and things around her weren't interesting, but it was very much focused more on Lloyd and Anya, and now she's getting, like, the first half of the show primarily to her as she tries to act as a bodyguard to a bunch of folks that the state is sort of trying to smuggle out of the country on this cruise ship. And so she gets uh, some actualization, some time to really shine both as a fighter and just as a character in general. So that's really, uh, that's really enjoyable and leads to some fun antics after the fact when she's come out of all of this really beaten up and sort of has to pretend that she's totally fine uh, while she's hanging out with her family, despite, like, the fact that she's been, you know, like, stabbed and beaten up for the past several episodes. Oh, no. Is there dramatic uh, tennis? Uh, not exactly, though, that do though it does come back in some, uh, in some little ways, uh, as that character of, uh, Midnight, I think, who partnered with Lloyd for that particular adventure, does show up for a little bit. Um... The only thing I will say that lets the season down is the same thing that was a problem in the first season, and that is yours brother. Uh, he is 
Yuri is just the worst. He he ruins <laughs> every guy. scene he is in. <laughs> because he is like like his obsession with your is there are ways to do this that would have made him if not endearing at least sympathetic that he sees your basically as he's she's the only family he has she saw him through a time when they were both really struggling and she basically kept him going throughout his childhood and allowed him to eventually rise to the position where he could become a member of the secret police. And he sees that as his duty to the country and to her specifically to protect them from what he sees as outside and inside threats. It's a good motivation for a character that does terrible things and still thinks that they're justified. However, the way that they do it is by having him like, let me put it this way. He can smell when his sister is nearby Oh, that's like, what you need. Either from her perfume or something else. And Boy. like the folks around him like treated as like this weird, silly quirk. It's like, oh yep, yeah, that's uh it's like that's just Yuri. Like we all know uh, it's like we all know that he's like, you know, way too hung up on his sister. As like, no man, that's creepy and weird. Nobody should be like this. Stop it. Don't forget, Dan, they're playing along because he can have them sent to the gulag. <sighs> that is a good point. That is a good point. They wouldn't uh they wouldn't back talk him on that one. <laughs> But yeah, it is it is the one fly in the ointment that like just yeah, keeps coming back. Yeah, I didn't enjoy him up. much in season one, so yeah. I'm, I'm sad to hear he made it onto the boat. He he was not on the boat actually, so we had oh. a reprieve from him for several episodes. It was when he How came lovely. back that, of course, it's like, oh right, you're still here. Uh, yeah, Scott, were you just really busy this season? You, I know you liked season one. You didn't get around to season two. Mm. Yep, just really busy. Mm-hmm. I'll recommend it. It's enjoyable. It's, you know, again, more of the more of the same but still quite fun and gives some of the characters that didn't get as much time in the first season the chance to shine. Uh but yeah, we'll see. We'll see how uh the next bunch of it goes. Hopefully, it sounds like we're going to be moving a little bit back towards the kind of original plot that kicked off this whole thing, which honestly isn't the main point of the series. The main point of the series is following these you know these these three weirdos as they all sort of like ha- they all sort of have some kind of weird condition in which they can recognize the uh like spies and assassins and other people around them but have absolutely no idea that the other one is also doing this classic mr and mrs smith very much so but yeah it's a lot of fun go watch it if you haven't already nice sounds like a blast all right back to me then so I'll uh, I'll jump in with Pluto. So Pluto is a story set in a future Japan where robots and humans coexist in mostly harmony. I mean, robotics has advanced just unbelievably so. The seven most advanced robots in the world are being targeted by this murderous adversary. We start the show by following one of these advanced robots named Gesicht. I might be pronouncing that wrong. It's German. Uh, he's a detective robot, and he sets out to discover who the mysterious killer is, and then the plot just expands outward exponentially from there. So this show... Sounds kind of like uh, like Metropolis, almost. You get the detective robot guy. Yeah, you have the detective robot, and then you know everyone else sort of expands around that. Um, this was my first soiree into a Naoki Urasawa work. I missed out on Monster when that was really big. 
And uh, the plot itself is this like tangled weave of character drama, reflections on war or human conflict, the ideas around what it means to be human. The central murder mystery propels the story forward, but like so much of this this tale like digs into what emotions do to a person, what it does to a robot, and and what drives actions and feelings in in all of us as living beings. Uh, the amount of heart and dimension that's injected into these these seven advanced robots, as well as everyone they interact with, just just top notch, guys. Uh, each one is a story, a history, a reflection on their time participating in what's known as the 39th Central Asian War, very clearly an allegory to the Iraq War. Uh, you get so invested in their lives, their struggles, their PTSD, their, you know, journey to, like, move beyond their time in the war and what they did there. And all of this is meshed with a socio-political discussion on the rights robots have or should have in the current world. Uh, the reason I started off with saying that we live in, or Japan lives in mostly harmony with them is that there are still rights they don't have. Um, and so they're still sort of like fighting for some degree of place in the world. Uh, the show never talks down to you. It, you, you have to pay a lot of attention to all the bits and the pieces of, of dialogue, the moving set pieces that are happening. The, the show looks and sounds incredible. Like Netflix poured all the money into the show and it absolutely shows. Oh, nice. Like it's, it's beautiful. Uh, no show is perfect. I want to touch on some, some pieces. Uh, you have to buy into the premise of how advanced the robots are like their abilities especially by the end of the show are, are downright fantasy it's a little weird to call this a sci-fi because their their abilities are just so out of this world it doesn't detract in my opinion from how good the narrative was but you need a suspension of disbelief to to get into it the ending is a little bit cheesy like the very ending like i was still moved because the lead up to that ending like really really incredible but your results may vary there's an unexplained entity in the show that's like a background adversary, and I had to read the wiki on who it was by the end. Like, it's just not explained. I think maybe if you had watched, like, original Astro Boy, you might know who it is, because this has a basis in Astro Boy. Um, but it certainly, like, didn't get any explanation. It could have been explained better. But all in all, you know, this was my show of the year. It's it's unbelievably Ooh. incredible. Like the the plot is just so detailed, so interweaved. It's got so many moving parts that all connect together. It was it's just got all these mature characters handling very very big things and dealing with big themes. Like it's it's stunning and it's so incredible that, you know, like Really watching it, you, you feel like you've watched something special. And it just elevates itself so far out of the, like, isekai, just, like, <laughs> garbage that I think we're always wading through every season. So I cannot recommend the show enough. It's a real standout hit. All right. That's fabulous to hear. I, I loved Monster, and to this day, I've been looking for something that kind of has that same... I know not the same story or the same themes, but 
some of that same vibe and even just going back into that visualization i only the only reason i didn't watch this was because i was watching so many other things and i feel like i desperately need to go back and uh play catch up on it now because that is that is great to hear that it actually uh holds up to the pedigree it's supposed to have yeah i really loved it sweet hmm uh i i guess i'll take back over um and unfortunately i have to disappoint some people because after that high i must take us to a bit of a low uh because thanks to production shenanigans and again poor working conditions uh the final three episodes of zom 100 bucket list of the dead also came out this uh past season after a wait 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 this also had poor working conditions it was a show about a guy in an exploitative company yes the irony is not lost on us what the heck guys yeah it is uh it is way too on the nose but uh Basically, the during the summer, they had they like slowly chipped away their way through most of the what was supposed to be the first season of all of this. But the last three seasons after the cast uh, makes it to the rural village where our protagonist uh, grew up, that they've sort of slowly been working their way to since they decided to leave the city and um, see if he can reunite or at least find out the fate of his parents. Uh that's basically where we we find ourselves um and initially when that happens you know it's a little bit of a quiet uh period that um you know they've they've made the village safe there's no zombies immediately threatening anyone and the main character has a chance to sort of try to reconcile with his parents who he didn't really have like there was no blow up or anything there was no dramatic fight between them but he drifted away from them because his father was very you know sort of stubborn and closed off and he wanted to you know live a live the life of a young person in the city and um kind of turned his back on uh his on his parents and his uh and his town to go and work for what turned out to be this deeply exploitative company that nearly like killed him and then an apocalypse happens and he's like you know what probably a good time to see if i can you know make peace with uh with my folks and be good to them in their old age you know before one or both of us is gone so it it makes sense i understand why they went where they did and there are some you know pretty moving moments where he kind of like realizes what his folks have been going through his dad opens up a lot um there are some nice you know some nice uh connections made between characters and that and the way that the village sort of is able to keep itself uh going in spite of all of this because they've already been sort of self-sufficient works out really nicely and makes for a good setting after we've spent most of our time uh in the city and traveling you know across the country now we're in a, a very different circumstance and it feels uh it feels like a nice change of pace and a really good way to tie a lot of um elements of the story together the problem is is that the last three episodes also spend a lot of time focusing on a group of antagonists who show up who are basically other people taken in by the village after they fled the city who, A, turn out to be, like, these antisocial, like, just absolute monsters. Like, they are terrible people. Uh, Some more terrible than others. Um, But they basically have all taken the apocalypse as an excuse to be even more awful uh, because they blame all of their problems 
on society rather than taking any personal responsibility. They're like a parody of, they're like a parody of entitlement. Dan's like, who let the purge into my fun show about like bucket list if I had no job? Kind of, yeah. Basically, they have made their own bucket list and it's like all the terrible things they want to do to people or to the folks that they see as responsible for their crappy lives uh, when, you know, most of it is their fault. So it, 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 it's just, they're, they're just gross to watch. Like, yeah, they get their comeuppance, uh, bad things happening to bad people is usually very cathartic, but it doesn't, it doesn't feel that way in this case. It just feels like, yes, we know what's going to happen. Can we just get it over with? Because these people are really uncomfortable to have on camera for any length of time. And they try to have like this, like real Dan, move. Dan, what? got it broke in for a second here. Do any of them lick a knife? Not that I recall, but they're definitely of the kind of people. spray paint? That I don't... <laughs> How badass oh, no. are we? They are absolutely the kind of people who would. <laughs> but yes, it's that kind of like, again, just a bunch of creepy weirdos. Uh, and one lady who's just like a real... She's just... She's not... I don't even understand why she's uh, with them. Basically, she's a woman who was like super focused on uh, business and everything having to be done right and by the book and... Basically, she was just she was the she was the office scold, and she's somehow treated the same way as like a guy who, due to his laziness and irresponsibility, burned down a restaurant he worked in. Like these two things are not the same. Being a jerk to people and like actively causing harm to others, like there's that there are there are layers here, and you're treating these people like they're on the same level. It's weird. <laughs> But yeah, they they try to have like a big dramatic like kind of character turnaround for one of them at the very end and it just it falls absolutely flat and they end up going back on a road trip to see if they could like, hey, you know what, maybe we should like actually try and see if anyone's trying to find a cure for this thing and see if we can help them out. And that's like where we end and I just... For such a promising show, it feels like it was really let down in the end, and I can't tell if it was purely because of production issues, if this were if these were issues that were already baked into the story or what, but I don't see any point in continuing at this stage. I don't feel like the show has any interesting things left to say at this point, and like the shenanigans they get up to while fun are I feel are just going to get stale after a time. So hopefully the folks who had to work on this uh, managed to get to work on better and more interesting things and not, you know, be de- not be dealing with their own exploitative company situation. Yeah, right. What how many of them are wishing for an apocalypse? Uh. Yeah, I know. I feel like the show should be like ZOM 100 bucket list of what we'd do if we weren't being exploited. There you go. Yeah, like a cry for help from inside the industry. The show. <laughs> Sheesh. Uh. That's, that's too bad. Yeah, a real shame. Yeah. Well, from there, I'll take over with the uh, the one show I watched this past season, which was the uh, the second season of Goblin Slayer. Uh, I'm still enjoying it quite a bit. I've, like, sort of, I guess, found a better place to put it in, like, what kind of genre it is. I really feel like it's the closest anime has to, like, an 80s action movie. Like, uh, huh. like Conan the Barbarian. Really? Like the setting, the ultra gore, 
like the, you know, the uncaring, chaotic gods, all this other stuff. It definitely has kind of a Conan feel to it. Uh, and if you go in with that mindset, I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I'm still enjoying it. It's a good adventuring tale. Uh, the second season, basically they travel to a bunch of interesting locales. Like the first season was pretty much around, you know, the whatever, the city and the countryside in which the Goblin Slayer lives. Now they're going on like larger, farther away journeys to places, which is good, right? You've already done a lot of what you can with the, the starting city. Um, I was really impressed with the world building. They like go into detail about like there's a lot of different gods that are sort of I don't know, like they 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 this the framing seems to be like the gods are playing a game with the people of the world. Oh. Like like the people that are pieces sort of. And so like the chaos gods and the regular gods are sort of in contention for for what will happen to the world. And like those gods are quite active. Like they're, you know, there's a, there's a movie that also came out this season for Goblin Slayer and the entire plot of it is the god of wisdom who effectively just grants people random knowledge for the for the chaos of it all like gives a goblin the knowledge to be a paladin and like how did that play out huh. the answer is not well for anyone jeez uh i mean not you know if you like civilization that sort of thing um but like you know how does he differ from the god of intelligence and all this other stuff so there's good world building there's a lot of and also there's a lot of other actors i guess like there's a kingdom and a king and like political machinations and there's other adventuring parties and it's not like we follow them but like we see them on screen and like orders are happening and like they they might intersect with our plot a little bit so you get a sense of a larger sort of living world uh which i thought was pretty cool um and also i like them changing up kind of you know the givens of a fantasy world uh my favorite example is, you know, you've got elves, they do live in trees, but it's like a tropical jungle with dinosaurs in it. Like it's not a European forest. So it's mm -hmm. almost like, I was um, like Avatar. Uh, yeah, I guess a little bit. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But it was kind of like a nice change up. Like we live in a sort of a, like the Amazon rainforest alongside a giant river and stuff like that. You know, the, uh, the, the ancient creature that we live in harmony with as a dinosaur which is neat um and also like the the overall message which i think i touched on in season one of the show seems to be like everyone's efforts matter uh and they you know they really kind of continue to hammer the point you know the goblin slayer and his team they're not going to be the heroes who save the world like those people are shown she and her party are pretty cool and you get to see them once in a while uh, but you know, his efforts contribute to a safer world for civilization. Like, sure. Could the hero and her party wipe out all the goblins if they attacked? Probably, but they have more important stuff to do. Like an interdimensional horror shows up from space. And like, if they had to be dealing with goblins, they probably wouldn't have gone and fought that. So like everyone's efforts do help. And it's, I don't know, it's a nice message. Uh, the cons, of course, the same ones as season one, you know, the goblins are vicious. They're rapey. That's all still there. So if that is not your cup of tea, like it has not changed in season two. Uh, so, you know, would not recommend, uh, I guess, for the faint of heart. Mm. But other than that, a good recommendation. You know, it's it's like real fantasy adventuring and not isekai nonsense. You know, clever solutions to uh, to problems and stuff like that. I appreciate that they're putting the effort in, even if 
you know, the the aforementioned sketchy parts of it are not my cup of tea. I do appreciate that they at least they at least try to make sure that there is more to the show than that. They uh they're not they're not just sitting on the one like shocking thing that makes them different. Oh no, definitely not. I mean it's again it's it's for most of the show it's more of like a background detail and like a thing to be worried about on an adventure than anything that's in the foreground for most of it. Uh, sort of combined with that Conan the Barbarian sensibility. Right. Like, oh, we're going to break into this place where the goblins are. And of course, there's, you know, a bunch of women who've been captured that need saving in the very much in the 80s action movie tradition. That sort of thing. Yeah, definitely not my thing either, but it has moved way farther from what I thought the show was going to be when I tried episode one way back when. Yeah, certainly nothing that has come afterwards is like episode one. Uh, episode one, I think, was definitely doing a, like a lot of shock and sort of introducing you to like the kind of world they live in in a really aggressive way. And nothing like that has really come back. Cool. Well, like I said, not my thing, but I'm glad that uh, you're still enjoying it and that the show is proving to be more complex than, you know, the surface level might suggest. Yeah, it's a quality product. Cool. Uh, all right, who's got something next? Speaking of quality products, uh, we'll follow. Uh, I've been following the Apothecary Diaries. Now, this is a show that I kind of got into late in the game. Uh, didn't start it until very, very late last season, and only uh, caught up to it now because it is still ongoing. Um, but I'm enjoying it a lot. It's a story set in sort of a. I think it's just like a fictionalized version of Imperial China, and this uh, young woman who uh, grew up with her father, who is an apothecary in the red light district of this city, um, essentially gets, like, sold off into indentured servitude, uh, not by her father, by a bunch of other jerks, um, to the royal palace, where she kind of, through her knowledge of medicine and other things and just general observant nature, uh, gets in good with the concubines of the emperor and the guy who's sort of in charge of this section of the palace. He's a eunuch who is supposed to be in charge of making sure that, like, everything runs smoothly. He's kind of the emperor's fixer uh, for this place, because despite it being mainly populated by women whose job it is to produce heirs for the emperor, there's a lot of, like, machinations and backstabbing and uh, poisonings and other things, and having someone on hand who's not just a quack or actually understands how these kinds of things work to proves to be very, very useful. Uh, and she's a lot of fun to watch. She's, you know, very analytical. It's kind of a uh, Sherlock Holmes-esque type of uh, series of mysteries where, like, most every episode or every other episode, there will be, like, someone was found with, like, terrible rashes on their skin after they touched, like, some, you know, they touched some, like, discarded notes. It's like, what's happening? Is it, you know, it's a chemical burn, or is it the result of, like, contact with the ink? Why are these women falling ill? What, uh, you know, what, what common cause is there that's uh, leaving all of these people you know, leaving all these people sick, or we found a dead body of someone who appears to have died of suicide, but there's some, like, unusual elements to it that, you know, nobody here really has enough knowledge to piece together, so why don't we show it to our local weirdo and see what she can figure out? Um, and it's all kind of... It, it, while that makes it seem like it's pretty 
serious most of the time it she has such kind of this detached manner about her where she doesn't really care for all of the palace intrigue and everything else like she may care about people on an individual level but you know the well-being of the state is not a concern of hers she's just like i just want to know what these i just want to solve these mysteries and like test these new weird like potions and poisons on myself if i can because that's apparently how she uh that's apparently how she entertains herself so she's kind of like a this like a beautiful bones situation kind of little bit yeah okay um but it's less like deeply forensic and analytical and more just again her general knowledge of like plants and uh chemistry and other things she understands things that we might nowadays take kind of for granted but at the time, you know, only like, you know, sages and scholars were supposed to be the ones who knew this. So this coming from this like commoner girl really impresses everyone uh, around them, especially because like the the royal physician uh, who's attending to these other people is like she describes him as an absolute quack. And he's not a bad person, but he's definitely in over his head. Ah, classic. OK, that's good. Yeah. You know, I gave this show a go when it first started because the light novel's really popular and I don't know what it was exactly, but I think the setting just didn't gel with me in in a way I felt good about. So, you know, it is that like feudal imperial China and as a backdrop, like women are taken from their villages or just captured at random like Mau Mau is and brought mm-hmm. to either be servants in the palace or if they're attractive enough, they're basically made to be concubines for the emperor. And it seems like nightly, the emperor just wanders around the imperial palace, picks one of the women to have sex with, and then like is doing that on the regular to produce the strongest you know, heirs that he can. So there's like a whole undercurrent of that being the story and it's it's just gross also like late in the game so i made it to episode six somewhere around there they introduce a 14 year old concubine one of the emperor's concubines is is like 14 and she's like been in the system since she was nine and i'm like this skeeves me out to such a degree because the emperor is like clearly in his like 20s potentially like very early 30s and you're like oh that's that's disgusting. Like, I, I understand mm. this probably has a historical basis. You know, I understand, you know, women were, were treated like baby making objects. It's all layers of gross. But I think the the overall undercurrent of the show skeeves me out a lot. Uh, I like Mau Mau as a character a lot. She's got a lot of agency. I love her, like, uh, mono monotone humor really gelled with me a lot but I think something about her loving the poison to the point of almost a sexual experience like it starts off as sort of sensual it like moves into like it almost it almost gives her like a sexual rush is just weird and bizarre in a way that I feel like if she was the proper scientist, I think I wanted her to be. I think I had an expectation when I read the plot that this would have more realistic science for the time. It's definitely not that. Because I do want to say, like, one of the episodes, they uh, 
like they're looking for an aphrodisiac and she basically makes them chocolate. Like I am aware that cocoa has a very minute amount of aphrodisiac in it, but the amount of chocolate you would have to consume to have the aphrodisiac <laughs> effect that the show showcases complete nonsense you die of diabetes first like there's there's no possible way that that's a real thing like the the science on display is not it's not a strong focus of the show and i i wanted it to be much more so the mysteries themselves like in the beginning were kind of interesting but I think I I have a hard time with the premise as it is. I I have a hard time with the overall undercurrent of what the show is doing to these women. I like Mao Mao, but her weird like relationship with Jinshi, who's the eunuch Dan mentioned, it like borderlines on like mm-hmm. stalker creep territory. I think I just wasn't in the right headspace for it. The the chemistry around the show is very questionable. And mm-hmm. I cut out actually just at the time she is released from her servitude and gets to go home. So I don't know, Dan, if you really felt like the show stops being so like skeevy. She only helps women who are like sex workers. <laughs> but I I think I, I needed to just get out of that space because it wasn't the type of environment I enjoyed being in. Mm-hmm. I think that those are all perfectly valid criticisms. They, you know, there are definitely parts of it that made me uncomfortable watching. I feel like, especially as it goes on, uh, it is handled with a greater degree of nuance than it's not. What's the best way to put this? It's not gratuitous and it's not um, there for shock value. Uh, for example, the um, the the concubine, the fourteen year old, like they make it clear uh, that this is a position that she is that she has been raised to, and she is not involved in the baby making process at this stage in her ah, life. Okay. Not that that makes it not that that makes it okay to raise someone into this position from a tender young age for that purpose, but she is. But she is there as part of she is there as part of like a tradition. It's a balance between the different positions of these concubines. There's there's always like one who is the the eldest who is um, kind of the senior. There are two who are you know the younger ones who are kind of like expected. Right, they're like to, the favorites. Yeah. Yeah, and then there is then there is this one like I think she's referred to as she's specifically referred to as like the pure consort who is there as like a a backup and b as just another spoke in this weird wheel right, again like i'm not trying to excuse any i'm not trying to excuse any of this as normal or okay and i don't think that the show i don't feel like the show normalizes it but it treats it as just an aspect of that world that people accept and again that really is going to come down to your own level of comfort with that i absolutely get why it you know why it wouldn't be why it wouldn't be enjoyable to be stuck in a situation where almost the entire female side of the cast is stuck in this incredibly patriarchal and like terrible system 
Um, so yeah, that is that is something that kind of hangs over the whole show, that knowledge and that understanding of the circumstance. And while I think that it definitely opens up a lot more after that point that you discuss where she's able to leave the palace for a time um, and her her work expands beyond uh, simply being a physician to these to these these women of this particular group it is still something that's always present and if that makes you know if that if that if that isn't something that you're comfortable addressing or comfortable as part of the background radiation of the show then yes like give it a pass cuz that isn't going to go away gotcha okay well i guess i'll see how i feel yeah all that having been said i recommend the show but you know, I will be interested to see exactly what uh, comes of all of it by the end. Because um, it is, we're starting to slowly piece together a larger, more complex plot happening in the background that's sort of happening around all of these characters that they are indirectly involved in. And it gives a lot of depth to some of the characters that initially seem kind of flat, uh, or maybe might come off might come off as obnoxious, or as you described uh, that one guy, stalkery. Um, not that his behavior again, not to dis- not to excuse his behavior, but you learn a lot more about him and why he acts the way he does. Okay, well that might put context around it. Yeah, there is important. I guess that's that's that 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 that. Uh, is a good point. There is important context that the show slowly kind of expands upon that makes the situation all of the characters find themselves in, if not a situation that is good, it it feels like a living, real place because it is inspired heavily by real historical, like, royal dynamics. So it feels feels very legitimate even if it's stuff that you know we personally would find pretty abhorrent yep makes sense and the palace intrigue was was interesting so so maybe i'll go back give it a go maybe i'd recommend it but again you know go with go with your vibes it's you know there's no there's no shame in you know backing out of something if it's not if it's not sitting well with you sounds good all right what's up next yeah, uh, speaking of things that uh, we check out of sometimes, um, I started out, uh, I'm in love with the villainous, uh, following in this now like sudden spike in Isekai, but it's a girl falling into an Atome game specifically as or related to the villainous of that game. Um, hey, you gotta copy the stuff that's popular, man. I, I guess. I didn't realize that... Um, my next life as a villainous was so popular that people were going to start replicating it, but here we are. I think it was. I think it was one previous to that, but I don't know the title. Ah, hmm. Maybe I don't know what that would be, but I'd be interested to uh, to check out the the origin point, the the patient yeah, zero. Yeah, Scott, of I thought it was trend. also I'm in love with the, <laughs> or the the one with Baccarino. Yeah, may, may, maybe it is. Maybe it is. I'd have to. I'd have to check. I guess. Yeah, maybe we'll do some research after this. Um, but. Uh, I'm in love with the villainous has a bit of a different twist where uh, the girl, um, or I should say this young woman, basically dies from overwork. Uh, like you do in Japan. Like, like you, you do. do. Like a lot of current isekai have that as a theme. Yeah. Which, you know, good work, Japan. It's Keep all, it up. It's all, I mean, don't. 
yeah it's almost like there's a trend but um she uh she dies in this reality and wakes up as the heroine of this Atome game that she has played uh and the thing is is that she uh has absolutely no interest in any of the male love interests of the game her fixation is on the villainous who is the blonde twirly haired jerk who we are all deeply familiar with if you have ever watched any show any shojo show or anything like this she's the the, she says hero oh, ho, ho, she has a She's got yeah, she's got she got the blonde, she got the blonde, she got the blonde curls, she's got the oh ho ho. She's like, you know, she likes to demean her opponents. I think she ha I think she has left girl and right girl. Oh, uh, thank god. Yeah, like the trifecta there. She is she is the she is the ideal, the platonic ideal of that character. Um but of course as we find out, you know, there is much more to her. She is not just you know, she is not just a a jerk to the main character. Um, there's she's know, a jerk to everyone. <laughs> yeah, she yeah, kind of. But she also she also has a lot of like you know she she has hidden depths and feelings and all of that. And the problem here is that this lady, uh, upon entering this world as a teenager, uh, is like immediately starts like sexually harassing this uh, the, the 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 villainous of the show and. Like, I'll admit that some of, like, the bits are kind of funny, but it also is, like, made really, really creepy because it just does not stop. It gets really, it just gets really uncomfortable, especially when you consider that it's like, oh, you're supposed to be, like, your character is in their teens, but, like, you, when you died and went to this world, were, like, in your early to mid-twenties, and this is, like, a 15-year-old, so even setting aside the weird like power dynamics of you essentially having infinite knowledge of their world because you were obsessed with this game uh your like the age difference and other stuff just makes it real uncomfortable and they eventually try to sort of square this circle where like the villainous is clearly not interested in her romantically and she sort of has resigned herself to the idea that I can I can as long as I can be around this person that I care about, I'm happy with that because like every time I tried to like come out to people in my real life, it I was met with like rejection or disgust and it's like that I'm not saying that that's not an interesting path for this to take, but it 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 feels it feels really bad like you, you can't have this person have had, like, successful relationships just because they're, like, attracted to people of the same sex. It's, uh, it, it, it makes it feel like this is something that she should be ashamed of and that, you know, that deep, in, that deep insecurity is, like, carrying through with her, which I believe from what I've read about the show, it does, or from the original uh, story that it comes from, it does go into later, but it just front loads itself with such, uh, like just constant, again, just constant harassment and constant, um, you know, obnoxious bits at the villainous's expense that I don't feel like I had the stomach to carry on through with it to get to the points where it might actually evolve to something beyond that, which I feel is a bit of a shame because from what I've read, it gets more interesting later on. I just don't know if I've got the fortitude to make it onto that. 
I mean, fair enough. Like you said, not everything's for everyone. Yeah. That yeah, sounds that like a sound lot like to a deal lot. with. I have one quick story from this. So I, you know, this show was nowhere on my radar. I didn't even know what it was. And uh, I was I was scrolling on, on YouTube in one of my weak, you know, doom scrolling moments. And there's a video that had shown up and it's just this silver haired girl, like majestically sipping this cup of tea. And the line under it is, are you what they call gay? And I was like, normally I don't fall for any sort of clickbait, but I was just like, I gotta know. <laughs> I clicked on it. I was like, what, what even is this? <laughs> and it turns out it's this. Oh like, God scene where a bunch of characters are talking to this this lead girl and i think they've sussed out you know that she's a lesbian and the one girl just addresses the idea very calmly while sipping tea and it's it's just very very funny like not that coming out is funny but that that sequence was just really well well done they're like little four minute clip or whatever i watched and i was that's how i learned about this show so I um I spring it on some of our mutual friends occasionally. I just send them that clip with the like that shot <laughs> with the silver-haired girl and I'm like, I have an important question for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is actually the precursor to the scene I was talking about where it you know, I think that they handle they initially handle that uh really well. I do agree that the scene is is pretty well done. <clears throat> Excuse me, at the beginning, but it kind of, I don't know, again, there's a lot of stuff that comes up immediately in the aftermath of that that feels like it's beating up on a character because of their sexuality, and it didn't. It was not clear at the time if they would ever address that in a way, or like how they were going to carry it forward, so that's sort of where my interest started to decline. I just wasn't confident the show that had spent so much of its time on sexual harassment jokes and step-on-me-mommy kind of humor uh, would be able to handle that deftly. So I wasn't going to continue with that. Which, again, maybe one of these days I'll get up the gumption to try it again because, my, like I said, it sounded like they do actually try to address some of those issues and insecurities more thoroughly as the story progresses it just didn't feel like there was any momentum towards that after that point what until the point where i decided you know what i'm good yeah i mean that's murky water to have to wade through to get to the other side True. so completely understandable mm. oh so how do we want to uh how do we want to wrap this up we got one more show i yep, think we can let's discuss. wrap it up with uh ancient magus bride season two part two so this season goes full tilt into a character named Philomela Sargent. She's one of the characters we met among a host of others that I mentioned in season one. So these episodes are like a mix of like magic school with character driven moments and then episodes I'm just gonna call it like crushing Philomela into powder is how I describe it. <laughs> and just, you know, like weaving her yep. backstory up until the final conflict with her family. Uh, I liked learning about the kids from the different magic schools. In fact, when, when we were doing just like character episodes, I was like, I wouldn't mind if it was like more of this. I don't need it set in the magic school, but like I liked learning about their their complex identities and their 
like feelings towards each other. I liked watching the group that that does form bonds, like come together as a team, bond over their shared experiences. I really, really liked Chise making hard choices and accepting the consequences of those choices. Like she's, she has much more agency in this season than she ever did in season one, which, you know, was, we were building there, but you know, she's finally like choosing things for herself. Um, Philomela's plight is really, really hard to watch. Like a la season one, this girl is just like traumatized 15 times over. I don't, I don't know if the mangaka is just like a big fan of, of that kind of melodrama, but like the show is so mean to her. It's, it's really, really painful to watch, especially episodically. And uh, on top of all of that, there's questionable plotting with the headmistress of the college. So to give you this idea, like they're all in this place just called the college, which I mentioned from season one, Philomela is basically infiltrated by this negative force and to keep it contained the head the headmistress closes down the college so nothing can get in and nothing can get out this seems like a fine idea at first except that the show doesn't really focus on anybody trying to figure out where the entity is it's just like let's close down the college and force this thing to be trapped in here along with a bunch of unsuspecting students and faculty and then when it finally reveals itself it's like the headmistress is like aha like i finally forced you into you know showcasing yourself because it desperately wants to get out and like eat the magic of more and more people, right? It's never enough. And so it, it gets twitchy to the point that it finally just shows itself. And I was like, this was your master plan? Like, it could have murdered everybody in the college. Like, this seems like a terrible <laughs> idea. How is this, how is this your actual plan to get this thing to reveal itself? Look, Sue, like flagrant disregard for the well-being of faculty staff and students is the like number one requirement for every That's magical a, yeah, school true. like if hogwarts if hogwarts <laughs> taught us any taught us anything except how awful the author is that it's the fact that it's the fact that nobody gives a damn about health and you know safety what you're absolutely places. right where is where's magical ocean where is, yeah. magical where is i want to follow ocean. the magical yeah ocean exactly people. we're desperately trying to get in like hey we're trying to save the plot here so Sorry, school's locked down. Can't hear you over the sound of people's right. magic being it's just drained. Like, it was almost like entertaining. Like at a certain point, the nurse is overwhelmed by the sheer amount of students that are just flooding into her office. And you're just like, why is nobody questioning this? I don't understand. But yeah, Dan's absolutely right. There's just no no regard for any of that. And somehow, like, a bunch of people don't die. But sure. Um, for me, it was, you know, again, it was really rewarding that Chise, like, acknowledges her trauma from season one and then reaches out to someone else who she recognizes as, you know, someone else affected by trauma. I think that character growth arc is, is really powerful. And if you're invested in, in Chise, uh, it's, it's really nice to see. The show looks and sounds really good. I was in love with both op songs, which is kind of rare for, like, a two-part season like this. Um, I think I'm, one thing that really helps me get invested in the show and enjoy being with this show is, is the mythology. Like, I just, I really enjoy that Fae mythology, how it's weaved into the story. You know, I think I complimented it in, in season one as well as season two, part one. So 
you know, that's an interesting world to, to be wrapped in. It feels very cozy. Uh, so I, I like that stuff. I would say do yourself a favor, watch this in a burst, and, and I'm including season one in that. Uh, it's it's hard to watch this show episode to episode, especially in this half. It felt really dragged. Like, again, the, the amount of trauma they heap on Philomela, you're like, you could cut some of this out. Like, this is... Just, just mean to the point of brutality. Like, I don't know that like, we needed this many episodes of, like, of destroying this girl. It's like the fifth time that she's like shivering in the in the snow. Yeah, or something. like she's one just too many. violently <laughs> sick in her room, and like various people will show up and kind of like look at her and and be like, "Oh, I can't do anything." You know, like she's sick because of her own trauma. She doesn't know how to bond with other people. Lucy, because. She is very distant from other people. Like, there's everybody is kind of like fighting their own inner demons and can't like bring themselves to truly help her till the end of the show. And gosh, that watching that week to week is is very draining on me personally, emotionally. Um, there's oh, the other thing is there's a lot of reoccurring characters and plot elements, and I'm just gonna fully admit I felt lost and just went with the show at certain points. Um, especially towards the end, there's like a major Fey character that shows up and is like, remember this like promise you made to me in season one? And I was like, no, no, I don't. But I believe you. <laughs> like, yeah. I just am going to go with this. <laughs> and, and the Fey's like, that's yes, what I was she's counting like, on. Ah, like, I'm here to do this stuff. Uh, you know, I think there's like anything else is downsides to, to everything. The, the cast of the show is so large, right? And at least this season, sorry, is so large that, you know, many of the characters play no parts at all. Uh, yeah, the blow is real, and, and actually characters, like, major characters, like Elias and Ruth, are sidelined completely, except in, like, major, major plot points where they're almost needed just to, like, move us from point A to point B, either, like, physically or metaphorically. Um... But what I'm really interested in is giving Dan the floor, because I know, Dan, you did not like this half, or maybe all of season two, now that you've seen it in its entirety. So I want to give you some space to talk about what you didn't like about it, because I am going to recommend it. I think if you're on the Magus Pride boat, you know, it. it I, I think you should be on this season, but I'm curious where things went wrong for you. Mm. Um, I mean, in general, I just think that all of the points you hit on, uh, I felt very much the same way, except that for me, I eventually, the amount of abuse and amount of woe is me that was being heaped upon Philomela got to be so much that it was like, this feels like parody. Like, this isn't, I can't take this seriously as a story of abuse because it is so far beyond that it moves out of metaphor and into, and like I said, it moves out of metaphor and into parody in a way. And there's more stuff that you discover with her family that feels like it's weirdly tacked on at the end to almost give like an excuse for the way, for the way things are not again, not like a reason for it that it's valid or anything that there's a good, that there's a good reason for her to be suffering like this, but like a more of a justification as to why it's like that that I feel like you could have woven into the story far earlier in a way that made it feel more like building up to 
the catharsis that comes at the end when her when her that chapter of her story is concluded in what I'll admit is it f- would be a very satisfying way if I had not already checked out on the story by that point and just sort of finished it out <laughs> of obligation. So the yeah, that just overpowering and constant refrain of how awful life is for Philomela and how little anyone else seems to be doing to address it, despite it very obviously being there in front of them. Like, I think that they're trying to say something about how, you know, abuse kind of can happen and people around either can't or don't know how to address it. But it's so obvious and that there and there are so many people who make it clear that they do individually care about like the welfare of the students even if the way that it's handled is terrible just makes it feel weird that nothing you know no one intervened and nothing else was done up until that point and on top of that yes like the huge cast and the constant shifting of perspectives and the reintroduction of characters from season one who i just literally could not recall the names or faces of if you put a gun to my head uh just added to the sense this overwhelming sense that there's just too much going on and it just left that whole latter especially the latter like half of the second season feeling just so overwhelming that I was just drained while watching it it exhausted me I guess is the easiest way to describe Completely it understandable yeah that makes sense I mean it is yeah. it is rough <laughs> For her and and mm-hmm. everyone around her, you know, is weirdly closed off in their own way. And so you just, you want to shake them all and you're like, somebody, somebody do something. This is driving me right. nuts. Like, even if you, even if you mess it up, it's at least like you're making an right. attempt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the only one I'll give credit to is, is Veronica. She's such a fascinating, like, character study. She's... She's really evil, but in like the most subtle way. So I liked, I mm. liked her character writing a lot. It was like different than I'm used to. I no, oh, well, well written evil. That's good. I'll give it, but at the same time, like the moment that she stepped into frame, like m- my partner and I both clocked, like, oh, she's the villain. Like she's the villain, guys. Like how does nobody see this? I know we have meta knowledge of this, but are any of you paying attention? Yeah, I think there's there's a blind <laughs> eye with respect to the way the houses that all these kids belong to interact with each other that I think there's a degree of buy-in, but I, I agree it can get very exhausting. So all your points totally make sense. Um, so I guess, would, would you, in your opinion, Dan, say, like, drop out of the show at this point? I feel like I enjoyed the... While I had my issues with it, I enjoyed the setting and the circumstances of season one a lot. Um, And I did not enjoy it the same way for season two. So I might see how, if if and when it continues, I might like pop in to see how it's going. But unless it really grabs me, I'm probably not, I'm not like, I'm not jumping at the chance to see more of it. That's how I'll say it. Sounds good. I'm I'm definitely still on the boat. I want to see where it goes. And I think there's a patience required with the show. Like, I, I completely agree the show has bloat. But I'm of the belief that there's a reason all these characters will come into play. It's like watching a chess game. Not all the pieces will move at once. This is fair. 
All right, so that wraps us up for fall. We had a lot more to talk about, given that I didn't think our list was very long. So always interesting to hear what you guys have to say. Yeah. Yeah, each one's certainly got more time to shine. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, it's been fun times. And despite, you know, my misgivings about some uh, of the series that I've followed, overall, I enjoyed my time with it, and it was nice to have to think about these things and what parts of it, you know, I enjoyed and which parts of it I could be more critical of, you know, try to get a li- dig a little deeper into why these things either worked or didn't work for me. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Hope you guys picked up some stuff to watch and some stuff to avoid and tune in next time where maybe we'll reveal that Brendan has not been on these podcasts because he is in fact a man in a heron suit. My God. <laughs> Not a real dude. All right. Catch you next time. <laughs> Bye. This is a podcast by the con artists. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us on iTunes or your Android podcast app of choice. For more anime and game related content, please visit us online at theconartistsblog.com. Thanks for listening.